This podcast featuring Peter Kittles, doctoral candidate in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University, and Talim resident director John Davison was recorded on January 10, 2019. In this podcast, Peter discusses the vibrant developments in diplomatic activity between Morocco and the Ottoman Empire throughout the 18th century. Yeah, well, welcome, ba welcome back to Tangier, Pete. Thank you. Um, I know you've been traveling since you started your research mm -hmm. in, um, well, since we since you came to Tangier. But maybe we could begin by just your outlining what brought you to the direction of looking at Ottoman diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Morocco and other parts of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Um, I came to to kind of land on this subject because I was looking, you know, I, I spent a couple of years here in Morocco as a Peace Corps volunteer and I became very interested in the country. Um, and when I went back um, after, I, I really kind of wanted to explore some of the more modern political implications of what was happening uh, in Morocco. And I found myself kind of increasingly going back further and further and, and landed in the 18th century, yeah. which seems to be... Um, from my point of view, a time of transition, not just um, in Morocco and the Ottoman Empire, but also in Europe. And uh, of course, you have the French Revolution towards the end of the 18th century. But um, I really wanted to, to look at that point of transition and see what was happening in places outside of Europe. So I kind of got a, a interested in travel narratives and looking at... Um, and looking at how Moroccans viewed uh, Europeans at this time, and found that there was quite a bit written about this, and a, a lot of them have to do with more literary aspects of the travel um, logs. But I was becoming more and more curious as to what were kind of the bureaucratic implications. How was the, the government of Morocco working at this time? And I found that a good way to kind of dive into this was to look at the diplomats, because the diplomats, uh, the Moroccan diplomats, left a pretty good paper trail, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah, and some of the narratives were written by diplomats. Yeah, exactly. So um, throughout the 18th century, um, you have a, a narrative, the Rihla narrative, which is really, I see, going through um, kind of a change and a transition. So in the 16th, 15th and 16th century, the, the Rihla Um, genre is very rich, and there's a lot of rihla to, to Mecca and to Medina and the Hajj. There's, a lot, there's rihla around the Mediterranean, but these are, are mainly um, written from a cultural perspective or written to kind of um, shed light on their journey and to give a sense of the networks of um, uh, either Sufi uh, tariqa that exists throughout North Africa or kind of the, the kind of wider sense of the Darul Islam. And in the 18th century, we have some of these ambassadors that are going to both Europe and uh, the Ottoman Empire that are writing Rihla as well. And they're following in this genre in terms of writing about their cultural experiences, in terms of writing about what they see in these places. But they're also, um, and I think this is kind of the most interesting part for me, is they're focusing a large chunk, relatively speaking, of their text on writing about protocol, on writing about issues of, um, of politics, issues of um, kind of court procedure. And from here, you can really get a, a good view of the author's uh, worldview. And these are ambassadors sent from Morocco to 
elsewhere in Europe or or the Mediterranean region. Yeah, exactly. So um, for you have um, throughout the 18th century, there are three really um, uh, big works that were written. Um, so you have El Ghassani, um, he's late uh, 17th century, but he's kind of the first and a, a prototype in this um, in this Rihla kind of newly changing Rihla genre throughout the 18th century. He, of course, goes to Spain, and his Rihla is called uh, Rihla al-Wazir fi Kakalasir. So the um, Rihla of the wazir to free the slaves, to free the, um, the prisoners. And um, this happens in the late 17th century. And then in the mid-18th century, you have al-Ghazal, who goes in about 1767 again to Spain, um, and his text is called Natija al Ishtihad, Fil Muhadana Wal Jihad, and that is the like fruit of the of the labors of the of the implied ambassador in both diplomacy and war. Mm-hmm. And even from these titles, you see these characters are working through these ideas of diplomacy and statecraft. And this Rihla is not just about going and you know, seeing Al-Andalus again. It's also about going and, and doing business. And they had their own forms of statecraft and diplomacy. Yeah, and, well, they had, um, yes, they had forms of statecraft and diplomacy, and um, they had um, a- an ethos of diplomacy, I think is mm-hmm. a good way to put it, that was a bit different than what was happening in Europe at the time. It wasn't completely different. It was parallel to um, because I think when you get to the core of it, diplomacy has two main issues working um, in it. And these are kind of the humanistic side where you go and you get to see the other person and you work through um, uh, you work through issues and problems to kind of find a solution. And these solutions are not known before. They kind of come to you as you're going through the process of, of working and finding out more about the, the issue and who mm-hmm. the other person is. And the contrary to this would be a statecraft, which is a more bureaucratic side of diplomacy, where this um, kind of peg in the old tool of the state is sent to fulfill a mission that he has, or she, has no real um, say in how it turns out. Yeah. Um, so we, we see these two kind of um, ends of a very wide spectrum. Um, they're kind of tensions that are happening throughout the 18th century and, you know, even until today in any sort of diplomatic relations. And the Europeans deal with this uh, in a particular way. And, and the Moroccans and the Ottomans as well are also engaging in these, in these um, kind of gravitational forces. And this is a period of history when Morocco is g- gradually expelling Portuguese from Morocco mm-hmm. uh, and consolidating itself, mm-hmm. both as a state internally and as a state diplomatically. Yeah, and so you have two main, you have two big rulers in Moroccan history at this time. So the end of the 17th into 1727, you have Moulay Ismail, who takes who takes over a, a lot of the uh, Portuguese parts of of Morocco and consolidates the Alawi control over um, much of the territory. And then you have a, a period. Uh, of fitna where you have between 1727 and uh, the mid uh, 1750s where really you have kind of the Moulay Ismail had a ton of sons and you have all of his sons kind of vying for control but by the time of Sidi Muhammad bin Abdullah or Muhammad III in in the 1750s 
you, you really have a much more stable um, environment. And he, again, is able to um, coalesce kind of internal control over, um, importantly, trade and the um, ports. And then kind of Morocco is in a position at this, is this time to look more outward. And Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah builds Asuera as a, a main shipping port on the Atlantic and expands um, the kind of control and uh, authority that he, as the sultan, has over some of the more northern parts like Tangier and Tetuan, which throughout this whole period and the 17th, early 18th century, the large, important economic families here all had connections to Spain and all had connections to Gibraltar throughout this time. Right. So it's about kind of the authority of the central machzan in a way of being able to, to corral that, those connections and those trade connections under its auspices. As it's consolidating the state itself. Yeah. Well then, and then at some point, the Ottomans come into play. Yeah. So, the, so you, to go back to your no. initial uh, question, where do the Ottomans come in? So I wanted to, I wanted to do a project... So Morocco, of course, is a, a, fascinating, um, uh, a fascinating example in this. But I, I wanted to do a project that was a bit broader and looked more at early modern diplomacy in the Mediterranean. And what we have is we have a narrative from the European side that, looks, that, that is beginning, and, and scholars in European history are really beginning to stress the um, dynamism that's happening in, in Europe. So diplomacy is mainly Francophone during this time period, except the Spanish aren't. The Spanish kind of resist the Francification of their diplomatic efforts. Um, the Pol the like, kind of Polish um, diplomats are speaking French and um, uh, throughout Europe, mostly. And you also have... Um, so, so you have this gradual francification of diplomacy, but you also have um, each of these separate states toying with how do you, how do you run foreign affairs. So you don't actually get uh, main foreign secretaries until a bit later in the it, as I a, a bit later than what we would expect. So I'm looking at a date. So for instance, Britain gets its own foreign secretary at 1782, I think, which mm -hmm. is actually pretty late in the game yeah. if we're thinking about it, towards the, the end of the 18th century. So I wanted to use both Morocco and the Ottoman Empire to see how these, both of these um, states are dealing with this period of transition and what's happening in them that's similar to, but also different from um, the parallel situations in, in, um, in Europe. And the kind of great thing about this, this framework is that the Ottomans and the Moroccans did have diplomatic ties too. Right. So, you know, the, somebody could, could say and, and posit, well, if the Moroccans and the Ottomans are interacting just with the Europeans, then they're, you know, they're just adapting their practices and policies and they're not actually creating anything themselves. But we do have cases where the Ottomans and the Moroccans are interacting too. Mm -hmm. And regardless to say, I wouldn't agree with the, the first point anyway, right. but it's a good way to kind of isolate these instances and see what's happening. 
And how were the Moroccans and, and Ottomans interacting vis-à-vis uh, well, -vis Europe, vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the southern Mediterranean, mm -hmm. but most importantly vis-à-vis -vis each other? Yeah, so all, all three of these, they... Um, the conveyance of letters was sent through all different points in the Mediterranean. So letters were sent from the Ottomans through Gibraltar, um, but also through Dubrovnik, or what was then called Ragusa, and then also through Spain. Um, and it, it depends on who was receiving a letter or who was sending a letter. Mm -hmm. And different Moroccan ambassadors like um, or statesmen like El Meknesi tended to go through the Spanish to send his letters and to receive his letters, so he had good ties with them. Uh, others, like Tahir Fenish, or the, um, um, uh, and the kind of Fenish family, which is a, a fairly prominent uh, diplomatic and commercial family, were more Anglophone-oriented, so they mm -hmm. would go through Gibraltar. But more importantly, between Morocco and the Ottoman Empire, there were about 10 embassies sent throughout the second half of the 18th century. Um, so these included, um, you know, both kind of eight or eight or 10 Moroccans and then three, I think, uh, Ottomans that came back. Mm -hmm. And sent, and the ones sent from the Ottoman Empire came from? Yeah, so they came from Istanbul mm -hmm. uh, and they came from an emerging bureaucratic system there too that, um, that was kind of transitioning between the different classes of bureaucracy that was gaining that were gaining uh, traction within the the central government there. Um, so, within the Ottoman context, uh, just like in Europe, where you have a you kind of have a a focus on defining statecraft and procedure, this is happening in the Ottoman Empire at the time too with the rise of a position called the Raisul Kutab, or the, uh, the head of the, the scribes. And this position becomes very prominent throughout the, uh, towards, especially towards the end of the 18th century. And we see this in kind of the, the works that are created uh, by this class. And this class of people is, in, is called the Kalmie class, the, mm -hmm. the penners, basically, the people who, who write. And the Raisul Kutab gains a prominence in the government, and then the, the ambassadors and the people who are sent across um, on different missions to uh, Prussia, to um, Vienna, to Morocco, to Spain, um, are, are coming and are being drawn from this class of, of people. Did you find anything, because I don't, I don't have to confess, I don't know enough about the Ottoman Empire, but the, the Beys who were in Tunis or the mm -hmm. Ottomans who were in Egypt, would their links with Morocco properly be called diplomatic? Yeah. Or were the ties always coming back from Istanbul to Morocco? Or were there both? Yeah, I, I think there were both. So the 18th century, the end of the 18th century, the Ottoman, uh, Algerian, and Moroccan relations were um, contentious, to put it lightly in a way. Um, the Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah is at this time kind of going through a, um, a program of trading and ransoming slaves, both Muslims and Christians across the Mediterranean, in an attempt to um, 
a certain a certain authority during over this part over this region over the Western Mediterranean, in kind of a power grab to show and prove himself to the Ottoman uh, Ottomans in Istanbul that he should actually have control over Ottoman Algeria and that the days and the the ruling elite there are corrupt and um, and uh, and and not worthy of of ruling the the. The state, but the the Ottomans really didn't ever ha, ever kind of uh, they didn't ever accept this, um, mm. but they did accept the money and the saltpeter and the the ransom slaves that Sidi Muhammad bin Abdullah was was continually sending to them. Um, so you had commercial you had commercial ties, you had power politics mm-hmm. involved within the region, yeah, and then you would but you you also had classic diplomacy which is which is your focus mm-hmm. so the classic diplomacy coming from morocco mm-hmm. i've read that you've in, in your notes and stuff that you've that there as the as the art of diplomacy was being defined there are elements of the art of the ottoman diplomacy that mm-hmm. are interacting with the developments of the art of moroccan diplomacy could you yeah. talk a bit about yeah so i think uh we have Going back to these two um, genres of text, you have the Rihla and the Seferat Nameh during this time, and they're both developing kind of in parallel to include more bureaucratic elements. And I talked a bit about the Rihla before, but the Seferat Nameh is also doing this. And I think um, it, it really reflects, in a way, the transition from a class of bureaucrats and, and political actors coming from the Kalamie class as opposed to the Ilmie class. And the Ilmie class would include more clerics or um, uh, religious scholars that were sent on um, ambassadorial missions towards the Kalamie class, which is um, which was given a much more clerical training, uh, well, a bureaucratic training, I guess uh, we could say. And a, a great example of this comes from two Seferat Neme of um, ambassadors from the Ottoman Empire that came to Morocco. And the first was Ismail Effendi, who comes in 1784. Um, he writes a rather lengthy report of his time in, in Morocco, and he's brought with him a letter that is basically meant to go to Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah, and then two others to the day of Algiers and the day of Tunisia. And he, he comes and is received and he writes at length about um, about Muhammad III, about the king here, about how he's he's a man of the people. He he receives ambassadors and anybody from the country that has a question in an open field. And he wears a white robe. He's very modest. Um, you couldn't tell him apart from the other people. And and this is Ismail Effendi, an Ottoman coming from a religious class, the Ilmiye class. He's very kind of struck by the the religiosity and kind of the baraka in a way mm-hmm. that he sees in Sidi Muhammad bin Abdullah. And he writes a he writes a very interesting report in that sense. But then he also, his kind of main goal there is to say, well, to check out how strong Muhammad III's claim actually is to taking over Algeria. And he says, we need and and in a way it's because he's built this this man up in, in as, as such a powerful mm-hmm. and, and um, powerful and magnificent figure. He says, we need to send more troops to the border. We need to build the garrisons. They've got a great army. Anybody, like 
anybody will follow his orders. He's got control over the kingdom and can invade. And he, he goes back and he submits this report. And now, one year later, a new ambassador is sent to Morocco. This is Ahmed Azmi Effendi. He's from the Kalamier class. He trained under um, Ahmed Rasmi Effendi. He's been on an embassy before. He comes, he writes a very short report, doesn't mention at all uh, kind of any characteristics of Sidi Muhammad bin Abdullah. He says, um, he, he basically says, well, he doesn't have enough men. He's not strong enough to attack. <laughs> Um, he doesn't have he doesn't have any people who can man ships, uh -huh. and he says, if if we want to deal in this region, if we want to kind of um, exert any authority over what's happening in the Western Mediterranean, and, and at this time the Ottomans were afraid that the Russians would pass through because um, and have access point to the Mediterranean, they were at war at the time. He says we need to deal with the British. The British have the ships, the British have the men, mm -hmm. the British have the control over the straits. And it's a you know, four-paragraph report. And, it, and it, 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 this kind of dichotomy, which happens over a year, two people come to the same place and have completely different views. And I, I think it's a reflection of the bureaucracy and what's happening in the, in the Ottoman um, in kind of the the workings, the machinations of but, the... But three cities on the straits come into play in yeah, all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or two and a half, mm -hmm. depending on how you define Tetuan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's focusing on Gibraltar, not... The, the Ottomans are focusing on Gibraltar yeah. to some extent on Tetuan and mm -hmm. also Tangier. Yeah, and Ceuta too. Uh, Ceuta in southern Spain, um, because he also kind of writes off the Spanish. He says the Spanish, the way that they, um, their laws in terms of provisioning ships that, that come into their harbor are, are not effective. Basically, they'll give water and provisions to any ship that comes. And if a Russian ship comes, we can have that. So the British, on the other hand, are a bit stricter. They don't have as many resources mm -hmm. in Gibraltar to be giving anything away. So, you know, like I today came from Gibraltar to, to Tanger. I've, I've taken, you know, I've been in three countries in a couple of hours. And, yeah. and this, I think, was pretty, pretty common at the time for people to be bouncing between the all two, three of these places. All three of these places, and yeah. particularly Gibraltar and Tangier. Yeah, and Ahmed Azmi Effendi's um, mission was paralleled or coupled with um, Vasif Effendi, who went to, to Spain, um, to, to Carlos III mm -hmm. in, in Madrid, and, and was negotiating there um, simultaneously. And you end your research before Napoleon comes into play, <laughs> yeah. before Trafalgar. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think... Uh, You're setting the scene for... <laughs> yeah, I think it's very purposeful. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't want to frame... I didn't want to frame my project kind of in the classic... Um, Pre, like early pre-colonial um, mindset of, of looking at the, the event of Napoleon. And of course, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt is, is important. And, um, and a, lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the protocol and, and style of diplomacy is, is becoming more um, hardened and solidified at that point. But it isn't really until the Council of Vienna in 1814 to 15 where a real... Um, a list of diplomatic rules was solidified. So we're still a bit earlier than that. Yeah. But it, 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 it comes into play. But it also, um, 
I, I think it distracts a bit of from what's happening in, in the Western Mediterranean, um, and also with the, the the Ottomans and their kind of cross Mediterranean policies at the time. But the Ottomans and the Moroccans have a very clear sense of each other's priorities and each other's importance. Yeah, um, not only the importance of northern north of the Straits. Yeah, they they do, and the Ottomans um, the Ottomans clearly wanted uh, Moroccan support, and they sought it out very explicitly. Um, and the Moroccans were more or less ready to give it. Of course, the condition was always, we'll give you this if you give us, if, if you treat, if, if you tell the Algerians to treat Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah as they do you, the Sultan in mm -hmm. Istanbul. And the Ottomans really evaded this because they didn't want to give up that uh, they didn't want to give up their place in Algeria, but they they entertained the Moroccans for you know long enough for them to to get um, you know mm -hmm. ammunitions and uh, and monetary aid and in in fact the Ottomans are they, they of course ended up lending uh, borrowing money from the British. In the early 19th century, I believe, but before that, they tried to to borrow money from the Moroccans, and um, this, of course, never went through. And they strengthened commercial links. You mentioned saltpeter. Yeah. I don't know what was coming the other direction. Yeah, yeah, um, not much. So these were gifts, um, and it was a, a question of, well, can we lend money to another Muslim country? And the ambassadors at the time, and Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah. Kind of, we said no. Like we're just go these are gifts. These are going, you know, to another part of the Dar al-Islam. It's not. We can't. We're not going to to lend. And I think, you know, it, it's quite possible a different scenario could have happened if they had created a an actual uh, deal or bargain. Um, but but there were there was no paperwork, and in short, this this uh, lending scheme fell through. But you have kind of. A certain complexity on the Moroccan side in terms of the ambassadors involved in these missions, because not everybody was on board with the Ottomans. Um, you had some who were more aligned with the British, like I said before, more aligned with the Spanish, you know, strengthening regional support, strengthening a, a Western Mediterranean alliance. And they thought, well, what do we have to do with the Ottomans? They're all the way over in Istanbul. It's, mm -hmm. it's far. And this comes through in the reports of two Moroccan ambassadors that kind of simultaneously go to Istanbul in uh, 1785. So El Meknesi and Eziani, they're huge figures, I think, uh, according to, <laughs> uh, you know, for me, in the 18th century. But they, they end up in Istanbul at the same time. And they were sent to bring Ismail Effendi, our, our Ottoman ambassador, back. Because Ismail Effendi brings these letters, but basically gets in a, um, a, an argument with Muhammad III. Muhammad III invites him to, to sit at his uh, kind of hadith session. And they're going over a hadith about uh, attacking um, the unbelievers. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's, it, it, the story basically goes that Muhammad III reads a hadith and says, well, this hadith means that we can attack the Algerians because even though they're Muslims, they're not acting like proper Muslims. And he turns to his ulema 
And they said, yes, yes, master, yeah, of course. And then Sidi Muhammad bin Abdullah turns to Ismail Effendi and says, well, what do you think? And Ismail Effendi is like, well, actually, <laughs> actually, there are brothers still in Islam, like regardless of whether a couple are acting bad, it doesn't mean we should attack them all. Mm-hmm. And everybody, and, and Ismail Effendi is telling this in his travel log, and he said, he says, well, everybody nods and says, yes, yes, under their breath. And Muhammad III, rightfully so, kind of blows up and, you know, sends him away and, um, and says, you know, get out of my house. And this kind of devolves into El Meknesi being sent to take Ismail Effendi back, accompany him back to Istanbul. Ismail, um, El Meknesi doesn't like Ismail Effendi. They meet in Tetuan. They're there for six months. There's kind of a, uh, an issue with a, a Jeria or a slave girl that Ismail Effendi buys and then tries to return and makes a, a big mess. This, of course, Ismail Effendi doesn't mm-hmm. talk about. But Al Meknesi leaves him in Tetuan and goes to Istanbul by himself. Uh, so Muhammad III calls Eziani in, who picks up Ismail Effendi in Tetuan, says he's a remarkable character, a good fit. Uh, he um, you know, is a pious man and, and a, a wonderful person, brings him back. So you already you see this split between uh, El Meknesi, who's kind of much, uh, he, he, he's much more favorable to the Spanish. And he spends his kind of, his uh, capstone project is a treaty with Spain in 1798, which is mm-hmm. basically signed on his deathbed. Um, but he, he went to Spain earlier in his career and kept relations and at time was even in uh, Tangier or Tetuan as the kind of head of, uh, you know, signed a, as head of relations with Spain. So he's kind of leaning towards that way. But Eziani, who was a court historian of the, the Alois, uh, has kind of a much greater admiration and um, respect for the Ottomans and, and goes, meets with the Sultan in his private haram, uh, gets an audience that not very many people would. And during this audience, the Sultan says, can we, can we borrow money from Morocco? And Aziani says, no, we'll give it to you as a gift. Oh, okay. And so this is where that kind of comes out. And Aziani then comes back and of course writes a wonderful kind of description of Istanbul, of his time there, of meeting with um, different historians, copying books. And he, he comes mm-hmm. back with kind of this, this sense that Morocco and the Ottomans should have a stronger relationship. So the century ends with a more forward-looking... Yeah, in a more forward-looking direction for in the relations between the two. Yeah, and and I think, I, I think um, they're forward-looking, but they're they're variant depending on the the ambassador, yeah. right? That's sent, and this I think is kind of an important aspect of uh, this early modern diplomacy is that the person who you send on your mission, and you know, of course, it yeah. matters today too, but there was a bit more room for maneuver. El Meknesi went to, to Istanbul and did practically nothing. Um, he, his uh, entourage kind of caused some issues, and, and this, is, this probably didn't help, but mm-hmm. he submitted a letter and then went on the Hajj. As, as the, and he was there for a year, too, because he missed his first Hajj boat. He's like, ah, shocks, like, I, need to, <laughs> uh, I need to stay here for a year. And he was there for a year and writes 40 pages on it, which mm-hmm. is practically nothing. 
And Ziani is there for a bit shorter time, but is is really more effective. Engaged, yeah. Um, he's effective, and tries to set up a deal, but the deal ultimately, you know, falls through. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. I wanted just briefly before we end, you mentioned at the very beginning that you came from a Peace Corps background, and yeah. we're always interested in learning uh, from a, just from a academic perspective what takes someone from the point of view of perhaps being introduced to Morocco as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then how does that, how did that influence your own decisions vis-a-vis continuing education and specifically bringing some of it back to Morocco? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it influenced it quite a lot because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be back here in the legation if it wasn't for Peace Corps. Um, but, you, you know, like I mentioned Earlier, I was a youth development volunteer here. I taught English. I, I got to see a pretty wide um, range of people and, and communities. And of course, I had to deal with the bureaucracy, um, <laughs> which was which was fun. And I've had to deal with bureaucracy now in Turkey, which was, which was, is, was Byzantine <laughs> as opposed to Ottoman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I, and I've dealt with uh, you know recently with uh, bureaucracy in Istanbul, which is very Ottoman. <laughs> Uh, but um, but yeah, so I, I went back and I was curious about how I, I just wanted to know more about how Morocco. It, it's such a diverse place climatically in terms of uh, um, kind of the the different environments and. Um, people and, and places can seem both connected and disconnected at the time. And I was at the same time, and I was curious as to kind of how this happened and like what what were kind of the precursors to this. So so I went back and I had um, just some really lovely mentorship during my master's program by people like Eric Calderwood and Jessica Marglin, who, who really helped me kind of fine-tune my interests and, and introduced me to work by other Peace Corps volunteers like uh, Susan Gilson Miller, um, who were investigating uh, these Moroccans who were really in a, in a global environment in, in the 18th and 19th centuries, mm-hmm. traveling all over the Mediterranean. And I was curious as to, one, like, I guess how this happened and how these individuals saw themselves not necessarily outside of Morocco, but within Morocco and within the the government or the kind of state system that was developing yeah. over this time period. Well, you know, being this interview is happening in Tangier and this idea of Moroccan outreach to the globe, which was happening when the legation was founded, yeah. <laughs> but also um, the fact that the global outreach included traders and included religious people included mm-hmm. um, writers included artists it's very nice to be able to talk to you about the diplomatic elements of yeah. the global outreach and especially in a, not in the direction of Europe and and but in the direction of, of the Ottomans and so thank you very much yeah thank you for good luck me. with the rest of your research Thanks. I know you you came over from Gibraltar <laughs> day and you're going back so yeah. safe sailing <laughs> thank you and thank you very much yeah thank you. thank you for listening to Maghreb in past and present podcasts other episodes are available on our website www.themaghrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean <laughs>